Hi everybody, this is Rootvij here with Harish, Mahesh, and Raghav, and welcome to the seventh episode of the podcast, which will consist of market news, information on how IPOs work, and um, underwriting as well, and due diligence on fact set or uh, FDS, which is a ticker. So we'll t- start today with the market news um, that happened since our last podcast release. Um, the latest one, of course, is the TikTok acquisition by Oracle Walmart, which looks pretty promising. Um, previously, TikTok was going to be banned as announced by the POTUS, um, but that was supposed to happen today on September 20th, which was canceled because, like I said, the deal does look promising and it could possibly go through. Um, what do you guys think? Yeah, I think Trump has already approved the deal and uh, it seems like it's you know in full swing now. But personally, I don't think the deal itself is very value creating. Because um, Oracle, not like they don't have access to the TikTok algorithm or anything. They're just hosting TikTok on their servers, which does make the data secure, I guess. But um, at the same time, I don't like the fact that they're, they're not getting really any information from it. It's more like they're just, you know, getting a smaller revenue stream now. And uh, I guess I guess Oracle, I mean, they probably don't know how to run a social media company either. And neither does Walmart, obviously. So... Yeah, I don't know, Mahesh. Uh, what do you I think? feel like it's just a very strange kind of acquisition to make. I mean, Oracle and Walmart, two companies that are, I guess, Oracle is pretty solidified in the database space, pretty pretty much an enterprise company at this point. Uh, I, I just don't see how it could benefit from this acquisition, them specifically, right? And Yeah, I think the main purpose was this, is that uh, we had a lot of like security concerns with the CCP. Yeah, yeah. I won't go into any of the validity of that. Yeah. But even with a deal like this, I would have assumed that it would have gone towards a company that focuses more on social media. I mean, all- rather than Oracle, which doesn't really it's kind of out of their industry right yeah i mean company statements everything mm-hmm. pretty much everything goes through oracle's sql servers at this point like all federal uh like databases military databases they're all hosted through oracle's sql servers so i guess we can i'm not going to go into yeah. the ethics of it but sure uh we could have an increase in data security uh but the fact that they're not having access to the actual core algorithm in tiktok is just uh not value creating like you said uh, yeah. And also, um, I, I think it could work like the, the positive situation, the glass half full perspective is that uh, Larry Ellison, he's a very like eccentric CEO. Right. Um, so I feel like he can maybe, you know, make it work and somehow uh, it would be value creating for Oracle. But yeah, I, I think leadership would play a big role for that. Um, I'm not sure how Walmart would do and how their leadership is in that sense. But um, if, if they can make it work somehow with the retail space and integrate it just you know uh for for to actually create something then that would be cool but i feel like other than that this is more of like a a publicity stunt (laughs) uh next we have the nvidia acquisition of arm holdings which did go through as we expected on our last podcast episode um in a deal worth about 40 billion us dollars yeah uh, so we already said how much we like this deal and how promising we think this is. This is actually the real kicker. And uh, I think in the future, you know, NVIDIA will really uh, solidify itself in the uh, semiconductor space. It's now the most valuable semi- semiconductor company in the world. Um, so, yeah, I think I think NVIDIA uh, ARM is actually probably my favorite merger that happened in the past year or something. Um, just because, like, you know, the, the possibilities for uh, semiconductor and data center expansion that it gives them. I've done a full like analysis on it on our blog, which we will link in the description below or in the annotations. So uh, yeah, look out for that, read through it, and uh, maybe give us feedback if you feel necessary. Uh, I yeah. think with the NVIDIA ARM acquisition, uh, NVIDIA can really solidify itself as a um, as a competitor with uh, chip makers like AMD and Intel. 
which will obviously give them a boost. Yep, Intel yeah, especially. Well. And we go more in depth on that in our previous podcast episode and on our upcoming blog. So make also, sure. Also, I wanted to add something. Um, uh, SoftBank they actually you know they sold it to Nvidia uh, via like half of the money in share options. So now SoftBank actually owns a bigger part of Nvidia than they did before. Uh, which is, I believe it's like a, a 23, uh, over $20 billion stake. So that, that gives them more institutional investor backing as well. And uh, on the news of this, NVIDIA shares, I think the same day they climbed up like 8%, which actually covered all of the gap needed to buy like the, the company itself. So uh, that's actually really cool. But um, you know, after that, NVIDIA obviously tanked because the rest of the market did. So all of those gains are erased now. But um, I guess that just makes it a better time to enter into the stock. Yeah. Next, we have um, news that the feds are willing to create as much fiscal policy as needed to boost the economy at the expense of higher inflation rates. Um, obviously, this could have drastic economic effects. Um, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, yeah, uh, I think this will probably make more people run towards fixed income securities like yeah. bonds and stuff. Uh, but at the same time, it, it could lead to a more inflated market as well. So, you know, there'll be like investors wanting to ride the bubble up, I guess. But uh, I, f- I don't know. I feel like somehow, to some degree, the economy, the, the economy itself is kind of like disconnected with, um, with the market. Yeah, right? at this point, yeah. So uh, I'm not sure how this will connect because um, I feel like a lot of this has been like factored in, right? The inflation that, you know, they're not obviously factoring that in. Um, and yeah, I think that's, that's pretty much already in display considering like the S&P is higher than it was pre-COVID despite, you know, the falling revenues and stuff. Uh, I mean, it, it depends on how long um, the Fed is going to like have in, uh, have inflation rates climbing like this, because uh, as the famed economist John Maynard Keynes said, inflation can temporarily used to be used to boost an economy, which um, is probably what we're seeing right now. And obviously, you know, the flip side to that is overinflation, hyperinflation can really chip away the buying power and completely wreck the economy. So you really have to be careful with how much fiscal policy you introduce into the system. As of the duration of this policy, I'm pretty sure it'll extend. I mean, j is comfortable with extending it to, I think, 2021 or 2022, keeping uh, interest rates low until the economy recovers. So I don't think we're going to see any kind of... Yeah, I think he said he said interest rates will be at current levels until 2023, 2023. Okay. I believe, at yeah. least, right? Yeah. 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 So quite a while in the scope of things. Yep. Yeah. Um... Next, we have the IPO of Snowflake. Um, but now investors are skeptical of the company due to its heavy reliance on AWS. Um, so- yeah, but let's just talk about that IPO price, though, because they were going to list at $85, and ultimately they ended up listing at 200, uh, $250, something yeah, like that, right? So they ended up getting way more funding. Um, and also Warren Buffett is involved with this and a bunch of other big institutions. So that's why people were really confident initially. But um, since then, the, the stock did fall a bit, you know, in retail trading hours because, yeah, it, it was very overpriced. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, and the latest news we have, well, not really news because it'll happen in two days, which is Tesla's battery day. Um, we're just expected to announce new technologies like the one million mile battery. Um, so what do you guys think um, about these new technologies, about Tesla as a company? Uh, I mean, if this one million mile battery um, works as like planned, then um, obviously that's a big boost for Tesla as a company, right? Because more people will uh, flock to electric cars more and more because they'll see that how much money they waste on gas. And um, yeah. 
I mean, that's a rational thinking, right? And you have to think about the fact that a lot of people don't behave um, in the most rational way. Um, even though they may have one million mile battery, people might stop for gas cars due to the convenience. Um, but I think the main thing from this one million mile battery is that Tesla can start uh, selling their products to other electric car manufacturers. Um, since we do see more um, companies starting to venture into the space, seeing as um, Tesla is very profitable. And so Tesla could also make a profit out of this, selling their batteries to other companies, because they do have a lead and a boost on this technology. Yep. Tesla Battery Day, historically, I mean, has been a spectacular kind of event for the market. <clears throat> I mean, for Tesla stock. I mean, it's lots of volatility, you know, it, though, like at times, right? If, if yeah, expectations yeah, yeah. weren't met, it led to a lot of volatility. Spectacular in the sense, yeah, it's very volatile. I guess options premiums always go up. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, one company that it is also going to have an effect to some extent on this, I guess, is LAC, ticker LAC, I think Lithium. Lithium Americas, yeah. They'll be announcing some acquisitions yeah, yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think some of that's probably just rumor mill. Uh, some of it might be actually happening. It could be, yeah. yeah. So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm excited to see if they make any exciting acquisitions, uh, you know, that'll help them like reduce their costs for uh, lithium sourcing, or maybe they're making a totally different battery that's not even lithium based. We'll see. Um, yeah, but yeah. And before we move on to IPO and underwriting, um, which one of these recent developments do you think would be the most significant? Um, which of these do you think is the most important? Uh, well, okay, of permanence, I think the Fed policy. But um, personally, I think the NVIDIA acquisition of ARM, that probably really changes the semiconductor sphere. Um, so I, I, I personally think NVIDIA. Yeah, yeah. I agree yep. with the Ritwitch. TikTok, Oracle, Walmart, that's probably going to be... It's, it's a very costly acquisition, but... I don't know if it's going to have that much of an effect compared to NVIDIA ARM. I feel like it's more of something on a political scale. It's yeah, just yeah. political dealings through I business. think any gains mm -hmm. made through the uh, Oracle TikTok deal have to be wiped off eventually. I don't think that it's uh, realistic to see Oracle share price rise on, on a silly acquisition like that. But um, it, yeah. If, yeah. And honestly, fiscal policy until 2021 to 2022 is pretty short term. Mm -hmm. um, whereas with NVIDIA, this ARM holdings is going to boost its sales for like be a decade because nvidia up until this point has only been yeah. in gpu I mean, it's space not just sales, CPU right? it's, space it's also so research vast. Uh, they, they get a lot yeah. of the arm research and that's that's going to be very important for new innovation to occur over at nvidia and uh if they can get like some sort of vertical integration type thing um with like networking with uh gpus and with cpus that'd be super cool i mean it, it would be crazy to maybe see nvidia producing like their own computers or something sometime soon because they have everything they need to do it you know so i could see it happening but yeah yeah kind yeah kind of like a giant software um uh, or hardware mega yeah, it'll be like hardware ibm or something software. yeah 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 pretty much um all right okay. so let's let's move into um, yeah let's move on to yeah, yeah so let's move on to underwriting so um underwriting is just basically how a uh, ipos and underwriting it's sort of you know a two-in-one but um an ipo is basically how a company like goes public right and then underwriting is when issues like when companies issue securities uh, to the public to help finance itself, right? So uh, it could be the issuance of shares or corporate debt like bonds. Um, investment banks are generally the you know the institutions that help people underwrite because um, they know where the money is, right? Like they have connections to wealthy people, uh, clients, that type of thing. And frequently, these banks are able to engage in some of the risk that the company is taking because the bank is the one issuing the shares, right? So uh, for example. A bank may say to you that they will attempt to sell all of the shares 
uh, to the market uh, that the company is issuing at the best price at the best price possible, and then sell the rest back to the company. So this is known as a best efforts deal, or the bank may choose to hold all of the shares all the way through, even if they don't sell all of them, and decide to only sell a limited amount in hopes that the price will continue to increase, which is called a bot deal. Um, regardless, though, what a bank does when it underwrites is it tries to understand why a company needs financing and it slaps its name on it so that they get some reputability, right? That's one thing. But also, yeah, you know, there's a lot of, um, like a lot of processing that has to go through with this legally. And uh, banks, they, they make a profit usually off of the underwriting spread, which is what they call it, which is um, the difference between the price that the shares are purchased for and then resold for. So uh, underwriters are generally allowed to manipulate the volume in shares in order to fix prices. And this is encouraged by the SEC to, you know, minimize volatility. Um, because when a first time that, that the security comes out, it's usually a pretty volatile uh, time for the market because, you know, the expectations are all over the place. Um, I, okay, and, and then my, uh, my question for this is that people always like to say, like, you know, uh, investment banks, you know, they don't really do much. They're kind of uh, useless in the role of the modern economy because they're, they're not making anything, right? Like Elon Musk has himself said that uh, too many smart people work in finance and law. We need more people working in engineering. But uh, do you think sometimes that people are like underestimating the importance of investment banks um, in the modern economy? Definitely. I, th- um, I think this going anti- back on Elon Musk quote, I... he said that um, a lot of people tend to go to finance rather than engineering. I think that's a totally different paradigm because Elon Musk is a very product-focused person. He likes to look at um, new technology that could change the world, and that's a very good thing. It's good for the economy. It's good for production. It's good for manufacturing. And it's good for society right, Banks overall. make it possible, right? But in order for these companies to flourish yeah. at all, yes, yeah. we need banks. Like, yeah. And that's a different paradigm that I don't think Elon Musk completely understands. Mm-hmm. Uh, for companies like Tesla to even be created, we need banks um, to help with a lot of their different financial uh, areas. Yeah, Of course, investment banks think, are uh, the very backbone that drives the American economy. Like, You need to have a free market in order to have the American economy. It's the very essential component. And if you don't have a source for companies to at least go public and do their underwritings and what is the economy you know exactly point. i think uh this kind of anti-invest uh, anti-bank or anti-investment bank or uh seeing investment banks as unimportant is kind of fueled by the 2008 mm-hmm. market crash yep. still because that kind of they were kind of the main people responsible but then again uh i don't really see it as rational to hold them like accountable for yeah. this long I mean, you know, they after all, they well, are the well, backbone sense, of the American economy. To, to a sense, I think, uh, you know, the consumers may be to blame too because they were taking on mortgages they couldn't afford, right? And uh, sure, the banks I were... I mean, but the only reason for that was... I the, mean, in a sense, I, I would put that on investors. the banks because it's the I mean, banks' of fault that they should have um, made sure that their consumers are able to yeah. pay off their loans. That's the main purpose of the bank is to be the financial person in this scenario. That's why you have them doing the IPOs for these companies because the companies... Um, don't specialize in finances. The companies specialize in whatever they're mm-hmm. producing. The banks need to help them with their finances. Right. Well, helping a company get funding is like one of the you know core principles of entrepreneurialism, and uh, you know sort of helping uh, help spurring uh, innovation, investment. You you need banks for that role. Like I know they're sort of a middleman, but um, you know what they what they engineer, what they uh, specialize in. It's it's nothing short of miraculous because. Um, you know, outside of it, it's super hard to see a, a massive growing economy like we do in the in the United States today. Um, you know, compare the economy here to any you know second world country or third world country, and you know you'll see how much of a difference it is, right, in the process of 
how a company gets funding. It's so much easier to get funding here. And um, it's also easier. To, it's, it's just as easy to declare bankruptcy and go back into the world um, of, you know, being an entrepreneur, being a businessman. Um, you know, whereas in another country, if you go bankrupt, you're sort of seen as like um, you're sort of seen as an outcast. Right. Uh, because there's there's so f- few opportunities there that when you squander it, it looks terrible. Uh, whereas here, there's new opportunities yep. constantly arising. So it's like it's, um, you know, it's, it's a constant cycle. And uh, yeah, I feel like, you know, investment banks, they, they get a lot of flack. Um, but you have to consider, you know, the Fed interest rate manipulation at the same time uh, during the recession. And uh, I think that probably had a big part to do with the recession as well. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of, uh, yeah, a big reason why um, nobody likes investment banks is because um, nothing they do is tangible. You can't really see or feel what yeah, they're well, doing. The consumer can't. You can see the, the company products. You can, right? yeah, the consumer can't. The consumer doesn't know what the banks are doing, but they, the consumers know the companies. They buy from the companies. They use the company's products. But the consumers themselves don't use the bank's um, the bank services, and so they don't know how useful the banks are to companies. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's one of the like the companies will know how useful investment mm-hmm. banks are, but it, consumers won't know at all. Right. And uh, another pro of IPOs, um, it's that you know uh, th- these public investors are able to sort of invest in any company that they want to, right? And um, uh, and I think this, it's, it's basically the first time that a company goes from private to public, which means that a- anybody can invest in it through a broker. And IPOs are actually set at relatively low prices so as to drum up the excitement for them and attract higher investor volumes. So like on average, IPOs rise 16% on the first day from, uh, the, from the initial price. So that's, that's very interesting. And a lot of times, you know, people do see them as a profitable move, uh, like for the short term. And uh, that's why usually IPOs, they're not available to everyone in the first like hours, in the first few hours, because people will just arbitrage them, right? Like they'll just buy and sell, buy and sell and profit off the bid ask. Yep. Uh, so that's why, you know, it takes a while for us retail investors to get access. But um, a lot of times they're still undervalued when they come onto the market. So, you know, you can still take advantage of it. But uh, yeah, Raghav, do you want to discuss a little bit more about IPOs? Yeah, uh, so... Their um, IPO stands for initial public offering. Um, that's that's the process of issuing equity to investors in the form of shares. I I assume you already know this, but um, usually they do this to either finance uh, big future aspirations, acquisitions, maybe a new product that they're coming out with. Um, this is the process from which a company goes from a private company to a public company. So uh, a private company does not disclose any of its financial information, uh, hence the name private company, to investors, and they do so as they please. The pro of that is that you won't have bad financial statistics uh, to deter investors, but um, being a private company doesn't exactly give you that much, I guess you could say, availability to investors. Uh, the exact opposite is actually true with the co- public company. Uh, early investors in a private company could include friends, founders, family, and angel investors. Um, and when a company goes public, it opens up investment opportunities to investors like you and I. Uh, we can buy shares through brokerage services such as Charles Schwab, Robinhood, TD Ameritrade, and others. Uh, 
usually sometimes these brokers make sure high profile people get access to IPOs um, earlier than us, as Ruth would just mentioned. Uh, because if everyone got access, then we would just keep doing the buy, sell, buy, sell strategy. So the requirements for an IPO is that the company, first of all, has to be one of the top players in its sector. Um, strong management or financial teams uh, has to have a lot of growth potential and um, a consistent cash flow and revenue. Uh, the price of an IPO and how to get it into the market is advised by investment banks and investment bankers, which uh, they get around 2% of the commission of the total equity, uh, which has been IPO'd to help with the process of going public. Um, but the price is ultimately decided by the company. Uh, usually the price of the IPO is relatively low in order to attract more investors to the company. Um, so that more people will buy equity, hence raise more money. Um, and then usually when the stock, um, the company gets IPO'd, the financial committee of the company decides how much stake in the stock uh, each executive gets. For example, Jeff Bezos actually has 16% stake in the Amazon stock. Uh, he got that when it IPO'd. And since then, he's so rich because the sky stock has skyrocketed 3,800% since IPO which really shows uh, the power of, you know, a low IPO. Well, I mean, it's, um, it's grown a lot so since then, right? I've, so that contributes so, to, the, to the price increase, yeah. obviously. Um, but also, yeah, we should mention yeah. that uh, people can take companies back private as well, like Dell did. Um, you know, you can get bought out by a private equity firm and then decide that, you know, I want to do some restructuring without scrutiny of public investors and uh, buy the shares back from them. And then go back in into public once you feel like you know you've done enough where you feel like you can require public funding again. So uh, Dell yep. did that because you know they felt like they were coming under too much scrutiny and they wanted to do some restructuring that would uh, hurt their funding too much. So they decided to take it back public using a private equity firm, and uh, I think it was Sequoia, and they they came back uh, public you know uh, after a few years, and um, you know after that everyone was more excited about Dell again because they thought that you know they made some. Uh, were the improvements that they just took them they just took some time right yep the same goes for certain types so, of uh, bankruptcies right mm -hmm. they can kind of declare this kind of restructuring state and restrict people from trading their stock in order to kind of sort things through within the company and then go back i forget what the exact chapter it is but yeah that is a type of bankruptcy so uh, i have a few questions uh number one what do you guys think was the most successful or, or i should say hot ipo of this, this year? year uh this year seems like snowflake mm -hmm. right now I'll see that i mean recently recently i would say rocket mortgage yeah, uh, yeah rocket that's, yeah that's rocket has a really big um stake in the mortgage area yep and the house sales have they haven't been down um lumber prices have gone up um house prices have gone up recently borrowing so is rocket up. mortgage is gonna, yeah i think rocket mortgage is going to be a pretty interesting um ipo i mean yeah it, it's already it, out it but i think fundamentally IPO. it's it's uh it has a lot more room to grow right i think in a year or so we'll see a, a big price yeah. fundamentally yeah and um we already kind of talked about this but um how important do you guys view investment banks in the process of going mm. public like do you think the company could just um go public <laughs> on its own without the help of an investment bank or do you guys view Definitely. They, them as yeah. necessary so like i said when root um 
I would say that, like I said, investment banks exist so that the companies that are IPOing, they focus on what they're doing. So Tesla, um, let's say Tesla's IPOing, right? Um, just as an example, I know they already IPOed, but whatever. Um, so Tesla focuses on their batteries. They put all of their manpower, all of their brain power into making car batteries, into making cars. They don't worry about um, how we're going to do the um, IPO, how we're going to underwrite. They don't need to worry about any of that because the investment bank will do that for them. And so Tesla doesn't have to waste any of its own money on uh, managing its IPO, its financials, any of that. Yeah, well, I mean, they do They do pay the investment banks so to I think do it. But um, it's because they're so good at doing it is why they exist, right? They're great at getting funding for companies. So yeah. um, that's what their job is. And their role is, you know, pretty secure, I think. Uh, and, you know, they have a lot of smart, smart people working for them. So, yeah, I, I think they're very essential to the, to the role of an IPO. Um, but, yeah, I think that that does give a, a decent summary of how, you know, companies go public and how they issue debt and equity. Um, how about uh, we, we move on to the due diligence now for fact set? So uh, I'll give like a, a quick introduction. Um, if any of you have any relevant experience or are friends with people in investment banking slash high finance, um, you know that fact set is the lifeblood of their financial analysis toolkit um, when it's not Bloomberg, right? <laughs> so, uh, and Bloomberg isn't even publicly traded, so we can't invest in it. But if we could, I would talk about it. Um, fact set has been around since 1978, and it's considered a staple, just like Bloomberg, in many wealth management firms. And it offers some of the easiest uh, to access and understandable financial data. Um, and, you know, so many newer firms that are less focused on trading have switched to FactSet because it has a lot of the same data that Bloomberg offers for like half the cost. So uh, when it comes to modern financial data, FactSet outcompetes Reuters and arguably Bloomberg as well due to their API services. And uh, also it's like a lot more open source. Uh, so it makes FactSet much more preferable to people uh, who are in quantitative divisions of banks. Um, like hedge funds, um, that, also, um, yeah, that have like API integration with Python or R, and uh, yeah, they have a they have a management system which allows you to run algorithms on it. So that's really cool. Um, Bloomberg does too, but um, FactSet is much more accessible, right? So uh, it's better for people who are like traveling per se, and also it like costs costs way less, right? So um, we'll compare it more with Bloomberg later, but uh, we'll we'll focus more on FactSet as a company itself. Um, on their on their website, they state that they're Mission is to integrate the data that you need with your applications, web portals, and statistical packages, whether you need market, company, or alternative data. So, um, and FactSet's flexible data recover data delivery services give you normalized data through APIs and direct delivery of local copies of standard data feeds. Our unique symbology uh, links and ag and aggregates a variety of content sources to ensure consistency, transparency, and data integrity across your business. Uh, build financial models and power uh, customized applications with FactSet APIs in our developer portal, right? So um, that's that's quite a mouthful, but uh, we'll we'll dive into um, you know the service itself. Uh, and Mahesh and Harish have their own you know sort of individual divisions that they looked into for it. But um, FactSet is this like very key provider of buy side portfolio analysis for uh, investment banks, hedge funds, private equity firms, etc. And um, it's making its way into non quantitative hedge funds as well. Because, um, you know, quantitative portfolio management, um, it, it makes the automation of risk management and the application of portfolio theory a lot easier. And FactSet automates that for you. So, um, yeah, like even traditional hedge funds should use them, right? Um, FactSet also provides more than just solutions for financial companies. And uh, Harish will discuss their, you know, corporate 
um, corporate help with uh, M&A strategy, uh, corporate development, treasury, FP&A, um, investor relations, that type of thing. But uh, I'll, I'll discuss their financials, you know, just so that you have an idea of how uh, stable and investment worthy the company is. So uh, here's what the last 8K filing reported. Um, the revenue increased 2.6% uh, or $9.6 million um, to $374 million compared with $364 million for the same period in the fiscal year of 2019. Um, this increase is primarily due to higher sales of analytics, uh, content and technology solutions, and wealth management solutions. Annual subscriber value uh, plus professional services was $1.52 billion at May 31st, 2020, compared with $1.45 billion in May 31st, 2019. Um, and this is really good considering, you know, the COVID crisis, which slowed down a lot of growth for even tech companies like Microsoft, Apple, etc. FactSet was able to continue to keep growing because data was more in demand at this time, right? So um, this organic growth rate, which excludes the effects of acquisitions, dispositions, and foreign currency movements was 5%. Um, so yeah, that's a 5% growth in uh, annual subscription value. And that's actually one of the most important metrics for a software as a service company or product as a service company. And, um, and a lot of the uh, workflow solutions, um, they, uh, the, the increase for them was attributed to a price increase for uh, international uh, companies that use FactSet. Um, and yeah, that's another thing I wanted to mention because because FactSet is so much cheaper, uh, a lot of, you know, developing country companies can use them without, you know, bankrupting themselves and paying like, you know, way more to Bloomberg. Um, and yeah, so the adjusted operating margin was improved to 35.5% compared with 34% in the prior year period um, as a result of reduced employee-related operating expenses uh, due to the coronavirus pandemic. So uh, imagine it this way. This is such a, a recession-resistant company that they were able to increase operating margins instead of decrease them because they had to spend less on offices, that type of thing. Um, diluted EPS increased 11%. So earnings per share increased 11% to 263 compared with 237 for the same period in fiscal 2019. Um, the company's effective tax rate for the third quarter decreased to 15% compared with 18.6% a year ago, primarily due to an income tax expense uh, reduction and um, yeah, so that's another positive, right? Um, FactSet increased its quarterly division uh, dividend by five cents per share, or seven percent, to seventy-seven cents, making this the fifteenth consecutive year that the company has increased dividends. So yeah, look at that. Um, only clear financial picture. Uh, we've seen that the free cash flow has consistently increased ever since its conception, and um, the annual subscription value is growing mostly in Europe and Asia Pacific now. So that's where the market is. So the primary service that Factset provides is in terms of data is their data marketplace. So that's a, an, a place where users can go to get several streams of different financial data points that are provided both by Factset and by other third-party uh, data providers, which is data that's already been cleaned, already been processed, that you don't need to necessarily go and scrape somewhere else for. And so you can pretty much integrate that data with your existing uh, infrastructure or leverage Factset's cloud uh, hosting platform for databases to interact with that data. And so they provide this all-in-one platform for you to download and upload data as well as use that data uh, for researching financials with the tools that they provide. For example, uh, data scientists and software programmers can use their data exploration platform 
to use technologies like you know Python, R, SQL, Tableau, and others, along with data visualization software in an already again cloud hosted environment, uh, which manages the database for you, so you don't really have to take care of hosting at all. Uh, one thing that's pretty interesting about Faxet is that they have partnered with Quantopian, uh, a popular and I guess well-known company in the quantitative finance space that allows um, quantitative analysts and uh, quants to quickly backtest and prototype different algorithms. And so when you couple that kind of existing software platform that Quantopian has with the extensive data that Faxet has, you have this perfect combination where you have essentially the entire streamline of what you need to do in a quant scenario, right? You need to get data, which um, Faxer provides, and then you need to do the analysis with Quantopian. So that's, that's pretty interesting. Another thing that's pretty interesting is their partnership with Snowflake. So like we mentioned earlier in this episode when Snowflake was IPOing, um, Snowflake allows you to, I guess, host your, in the, in the context of Faxer, it allows you to host your databases um, using either GCP, AWS, or Azure. And so it allows for large and complex queries to be run without you needing to use your own infrastructure, uh, only needing Snowflake. So this simplifies the data pipeline of taking external data and combining it with your own and serving that on a database. Uh, one other interesting thing, this is the last one, is that for machine learning researchers particularly, their partnership with DataRobot allows you to test, build, and deploy different types of machine learning algorithms in the realm of finance. So that includes both just microeconomic uh, prediction or anything on a stock, as well as just macroeconomic kind of factors. And you, you're allowed to do that with ease, thanks to this partnership, I guess. So that, that's the uh, main three, I guess, partnerships that they have and services that they provide for data scientists. All right, and Harish, you want to talk about the corporate development side for FactSet? So FactSet um, also allows corporations to find merger and acquisition targets um, through their software. Um, it lets them access real-time news and intelligence, um, and it gets them the latest financial information on companies and markets all over the world with um, one of their services. Um, it helps them find company risk relations and classifications, um, as for what actually companies do, um, what they delegate their manpower and brain power to doing. Um, also, um, analyzes private company data, so not just um, public companies. Um, but also helps with 40 private company data items, including rounds or securities, invested uh, management and board members' financial data and employee accounts. Yeah. So, and on top um, of that, there's the, uh, they provide insurance risk assessment. Um, and yeah, and then for the companies, it's, it's very useful for analyzing your competitors, right? So, uh, if you want to go and see your competitors' finances, um, look at private company finances, which usually, you know, they don't give out access to. Uh, that's, that's where you would go to. You would go to Faxet, right? And if you, let's say you want to eat up another company, let's say you're NVIDIA and you want ARM, uh, it's a private company, perfect situation where you would be using Faxet, right? Because you want to look at their data, you want to look at who their leadership is. Um, and yeah, usually, I mean, it's better for a smaller company usually, right? Not for NVIDIA acquiring ARM because they can just get that info from SoftBank. But, um, if, yeah, let's say you were in a similar situation, it was just smaller companies where, you know, the ease of data wasn't as available, then you would use FactSet. And um, if you want to analyze your own corporation's risk, uh, yeah, so all that sort of stuff, FactSet corporate development would be useful for. Um, Bloomberg doesn't provide any service like that as far as I'm aware of. 
So yeah, that's another space where FactSet is um, venturing out into more than just fintech. Uh, they're going into insurance and uh, corporate development as well, right? So um, and here's what FactSet said had to. This is what FactSet said in their last 10K um, about talking about their competitive position within the market and providing financial data. Um, Despite competing products and services, we enjoy high barriers to entry and believe it would be difficult for another vendor to quickly replicate the extensive databases we currently offer. Through our in-depth client and and analytics service, we believe that we can offer clients a more comprehensive solution with one of the most broadest sets of functionalities through a desktop or a mobile user interface or through a standardized or bespoke data feed. And FactSet is confident that their ML services cannot be replaced by anybody else in the industry. In addition, our applications include our client support and service offerings and are entrenched in the workflow of many financial professionals given the downloading functions of our portfolio analysis slash screening capabilities offered. We are entrusted with significant amounts of our client's own proprietary data, including portfolio holdings. As a result, our products have become central to our client's investment analysis and decision making, right? So this just tells you that uh, they've created a big network economy, right? So with more people that they add, like their, their revenue will grow exponentially because they're able to interconnect more and more companies' data together, analyze it faster. And uh, yeah, with each customer they get, they get more than just someone who's paying them. They get, uh, they get a piece of data, right? <laughs> so all of that data is for them to use and for them to train their machine learning models off of, for them to uh, you know, be able to inform other companies and you know, create like, it, and for uh, news, uh, news to access the data, that type of thing. So um, yeah, I believe the the Motley Fool they also use FactSet, right? Because they they have a lot of data, right? <laughs> so yeah, and uh, and it's because of that network economy, that term. Um, so yeah, and if you read the full report and compare it to the most recent 8K, um, from if you compare last year's annual report to this year's 8K, you'll find that the real expenses this quarter were far lower than expected in the last 10K, as there was a lower than expected tax rate and a three percent increase in expected operating margins from uh, the expected figure as well. So the company also reports a 90% customer retention rate over 15 years. So uh, you know that they're not lying when they say the clients need them for all sorts of financial services, whether it's for M&A or wealth management and equity analysis. Um, let's talk about the financials of the company itself more in depth. Uh, FactSet has had a decreasing cash conversion cycle um, because they've been, you know, they've been a subscription platform. Uh, they still have a very low cash conversion rate. So uh, right now it's at less than 40 days to finance, um, which just means that, you know, they have less days where they need to borrow money, right? So, um, and FDS had taken on a lot of leverage in 2015, but um, since then they've been able to reduce the uh, debt to EBITDA ratio significantly. Uh, And yeah, so what's up with that? Why were FactSet's long-term debts like at zero all of a sudden and why they spike up? Well, uh, usually for a company that's non-cyclical and has a well-established product like FactSet, leverage can actually be good at amplifying returns. So um, I wouldn't be scared of the debt because that's actually going to be increasing the returns now. Um, And you can see that since they've taken on the debt, they saw some volatility from early on, but the stock actually continued to grow since 2015, right? So uh, this was actually able to help the share price if you go and look at the chart right now. And uh, you can see that debt debt over EBITDA is beginning to... uh, start a rapid decline because the EBITDA has increased since then. And uh, this only adds to my theory that FactSet is trying to expand into new playing fields, right? Or why else would they take on leverage? Um, FactSet obviously didn't need the leverage to cover their normal costs because they've always had consistently growing margins and uh, revenue. So the debt financing 
was only for the sake of financing growth. And this debt can be considered uh, covered and paid off, considering that the net income growth of 32% between 2018 and 19, and uh, EPS growth of 33%. I'm pretty sure the debt interest rate is going to be like 2%. <laughs> so I'm not concerned about them being uh, unable to cover the debt. Um, EBITDA has been virtually exponential for Faxet for a while because of the bang for buck for their well-known product. But also now as Faxet ventures into algorithmic trading and corporate development, the scope for the growth is broadly expanded. The price to earnings ratio right now is uh, sub 30 and um, that's lower than it was last year. And uh, it makes it a great time to buy. So for the past two years, PE has been declining. Uh, return on equity has increased for the past two years and, um, and cash per share has increased significantly for the past two years. Um, and yeah, mountains of cash have been piling up into the coffers, which just increases the chances of offering increased dividends for shareholders. And, um, and on top of that, there's a lot of buybacks that are uh, going to be coming soon. So yeah, a large buyback expansion program was implemented for $210 million worth of shares, which shows how confident they are in the company itself. Um, SG&A expenses per gross profit has been declining, despite the expansion of international offices. Um, and the only reason I'd be concerned about this company now is because of the skin in the game that the leadership has. So uh, very few executives slash board members have significant holdings in the company. So uh, that always does concern me a bit. But considering how old facts that is, that does make sense, right? Usually only a new CEO has a lot of stake in the company. And the CEO himself is a veteran at Faxet. He knows his way around the company. And um, so although Bloomberg beats out Faxet for trading and fixed income securities, um, and Reuters does beat out Faxet for being a legacy company. Uh, Faxet is the growth stock here, and um, they have the best, biggest chances for increasing cash flow and uh, taking market share from their competitors. Uh, Faxet has a lot of growth left in its industry, which is already fast growing in and of itself, which is you know fintech and financial research, and um, it has a lot more potential at its current pretty low valuation. So um, earnings for Faxet are September twenty fourth, and I think it should be a pretty big beat because. Investment banking, trading demand has gone up. And um, yeah, there's been a lot of M&A activity, as we already discussed, which, uh, you know, if you're listening to the news portion, you know that um, FactSet is needed for that. And investment banks do like using FactSet. So um, yeah, and I think that just creates a good buying opportunity uh, pre-earnings, but also it's a great long-term investment. Um, what do you guys think about FactSet? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think the demand for fintech is going to uh, see a rise soon as uh, we see more integration of finance and tech uh, technology, like software and machine learning. So, yeah, I think uh, definitely a company yeah, and, to watch. And uh, just sure. just seeing how, how good their margins are and how low the valuation is only makes it look better, right? Um, what about you, Harish? What do you think about FactSet? Yeah, I think it'll take some time for people to realize the true valuation of um, FactSet. Especially since it's not a very well-known company. I mean, I would say among like the typical investor, mm. um, but probably again among like institutional investors who see this company as undervalued. But the regular investor probably doesn't even know about this company. I think that's why it's mostly undervalued right and, now. And um, yeah, Faxet obviously it has other great metrics like twenty-one percent return on assets, fifty-two percent return on equity, which is way far outperforming any other competitors and uh, 29.3% return on invested capital. So um, yeah, for, for me, I think it looks like a clear buy. Uh, it is at like a somewhat high valuation using certain metrics, but considering like how high the tech valuations are, this actually isn't that bad. So yeah, that just, I mean, the profitability of this company is obviously great. 
Um, you know, all of the margins are great. Operating 30, 31%. Uh, net margin is 25%. So yeah, I mean, they don't need to spend money on a lot of stuff, which makes them, you know, uh, a really, a really good um, standout in the tech industry because they're not over leveraged or anything considering how much money they have. Um, and yeah, the valuation, it looks mid compared to other companies, but compared to other tech companies, it's actually, you know, it's actually a bargain. <laughs> all right. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode. Um, and yeah, please leave any suggestions that you have. Uh, Harish, do you need to uh, g- give our outro? Thank you for tuning in to the seventh episode of the Dogs of the Law Street, our f- economics and finance podcast. Uh, make sure to check in on our blog um, with the link in the description to get a much more in-depth analysis on FactSet and many other more editorials coming in the future.